actors might do a character sketch. None of that makes it into the script, but it is in their body language. It's in their tone of voice. It's in the, it's, it's in. So even though a lot of my research, most of my research didn't necessarily make it on the page, it's in, in my head. It made it into maybe the setting or it made it into the way that characters reacted with each other or spoke to each other. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with author of the Runaway at Sea series, Marguerite Maitland. Upon inheriting a journal that had been in her family for generations, Marguerite decided to take the incredible stories of her family found in the journal and turn them into novels. Since the publication of the first two novels in the series, Marguerite has launched a creative writing workshop for children aged 10 and up for schools and libraries, and is enjoying an opportunity to help students discover their potential and original ideas. Marguerite and I had a lovely conversation that I can't wait to share. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Marguerite Maitland, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so, Marguerite, you are an author. Uh, a couple of books published, uh, Runaway at Sea and then Adventurer at Sea, which is right. the sequel to Runaway at Sea, correct? Correct. It is book two of three books. So there's a third one coming. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> awesome. A book series, yeah. Well, so I, I definitely I want to talk about your life and your work as an author and, and all of those kinds of things. But I also, just to, to, to start up front, would you mind giving, and obviously we don't want to spoil the plot or something, but could you give right. an overview or a synopsis of what readers can expect in this series of books? Uh, yeah, so it is um, it is based on the true story of my great-great-grandfather, Robert Frost, not the poet, completely different branch of people, so not related at all. Um, but he lived in Southeast England and from a, you know, uneducated, couldn't swim, um, et cetera. And his oldest, their father had died um, at, for something we don't know. It's, that's left out of the journal. Um, but his oldest brother really kind of focused some abusive behavior on Robert and he had just had about enough. So when he was 12, he and his buddy decided to run away. They went to the port of Hull, which is a big whaling port back then, big British naval port back then, but also cargo ships. It was just a, a, a port of trade really for England in, in the mid 1800s. And mm. so they, they snuck aboard a ship, they hid in the lifeboat and their plan was that they were just going to, you know, uh, kind of crawl out and try to sneak like into the crew or kind of work their way to one port and then, you know, sneak off and then have a new life. And um, that didn't go that way. You know, it's like an, um, <laughs> they got found in the lifeboat. Um, right after the ship left for sea, it turned out to be a British naval vessel. So whoops. And um, <laughs> those are not so easy to sneak on and off, you know, so the captain right. was none too happy with them, had them disciplined and sworn into service. And so he spent the next seven years of his life having all kinds of incredible adventures accidentally on purpose um, all over the world, all over the world's oceans, um, for seven years, and then after that, he trekked across America um, from San Francisco to Nebraska um, from 1856 to 1866. The whole series 
covers his life from age 12 all the way through to when he makes it to um, across America. So it's, it's split into, and it's all based on the journal, which was actually written by his daughter, my great grandmother. And she, so the, his whole story is told in her voice as she remembers him just telling them fireside chats before they went to bed. You know, if you can kind of picture 1849 little stone English cottage with the big thick wood plank you know, uh, floors and the big fire and the kids would just, you know, sit around their, their father and he would just tell these incredible stories of his life. And, um, and so that's where it came from. So she, she retold the stories to my grandfather and his siblings and they all said, mommy have to write it down. So that's what she did. And then my grandfather typed it up and before he died, he gave it to me. So that's my, my not very short version. <laughs> no, no, that's good. Story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I have a few thoughts that, that come out of that. One is, I, I don't even know if it's a question. It's not really definitely a question specific to you, but it's just so interesting to think about because on the one hand, 1849 is a really long time ago, Yeah, but it's also not really that long ago, right? Like, right. I mean, right. it is, but in the scale of time, it's not. Mm-hmm. And, and at that time, and probably for a lot of time before that, if not all of time before that, you could kind of just plan to run away somewhere and start a new life. And even though he got found, I'm like, if, if I was to go, well, not me at 37, but (laughs) whatever, if, if 20 year old me or something was to go sneak on a Navy boat or 12 year old me was to sneak on a Navy boat and I got found, they don't just have me join them as a solution to that. Right. Like, just so crazy how different the world is in really a pretty short period of time. Yeah. Well, yes, we've, we've definitely changed a lot around the world. Um, and certainly <laughs> between England and, and the United States changed a lot. So, yeah, back then, families would actually bring their young boys to the ship with just a trunk or, or a canvas for a burlap sack of, of stuff and say, I can't feed this kid. You know, I have no money. And and here you go. And And so a lot of young sailors, a lot of young, what they would call the young gentlemen and the powder, what they would call a powder monkey, which is one of the things Robert, um, one of the jobs he had aboard one of these ships, um, obviously a powder monkey being, you know, with the cannon firing and this and that. Um, mm-hmm. So, so with families would just drop their kids off because there was a cholera epidemic, you know, there was famine, there was, you know, and then of course it was still at a time when they were almost kidnapping sailors off the street to try to fill the naval vessels. <laughs> so, um, you know, they were still having some sailors pressed into service. So these boys really didn't know any of that. You know, they, 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 didn't, right. they, they never went to school. The only school my great, great grandfather ever spent time in was when he was fixing the roof of the schoolhouse hmm. for his family's um, construction business. They had a brick making and construction business. So wild. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, obviously you, you know, you shared that it's, initially in kind of an oral tradition told from your great, great grandfather and then told to your grandmother who then put it down and in, in, in into right. written form. But is your family otherwise a family of authors or creatives? Like, does this, did you grow up around writing um, or? Well, I grew up around people that had an avid love for literature and mm. for reading. So um, I read incessantly as a child. I adored getting lost in a story. 
And in a way, it was probably um, some type of escape for me as a kid. As an adolescent, I got teased a lot. I got, you know, it was tough. Like, I, I don't know how people survive now with social media and elementary schools and middle school. I, I would not have survived any of those yeah. years if there were a constant, you know, cameras and, and online and this and that. But so I, you know, I definitely kind of loved to get lost in these other worlds. Um, and it was maybe therapeutic for me. So I read classics. I read, you know, romance novels. I love Tom Clancy. You know, I love the espionage detective, not Agatha Christie. Then I read mm. Jane Austen. I would read, um, you know, a Margaret Mitchell, Gone with the Wind, which is my favorite book ever. My second favorite book is Anna Karenina. So I did tremendous amounts of reading. And um, mm. when I went to college, like I always wanted to write, but I just... I did well in creative writing. I didn't do so well in math and science as a kid. I gravitated towards the essays and the and the English and that. So my mom was a biologist and is a concert pianist um, oh. and a computer programmer. My aunt was a pediatrician, but she read incessantly. My uncle was a lawyer, is a lawyer. Um, my sister was in, you know, kind of the finance and then she moved into fitness and personal training. So, you know, I mean, I dabbled in theater a little bit. I did some dancing as a, in high school, you know, so that kind of thing. So I guess there was always a little bit of a creative bug because I was surrounded by scientific geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> and you had I, to cope with it somehow. Yeah, I had to, I had to do something, right? So I, I danced or I, I sang or I, you know, um, tried to act. I don't know that I could act at all. I could certainly you know, flub my way through a chorus or whatever. But um, so so I latched on to creative stuff because I mm. never felt confident in being scientific about anything. And, you know, my mom read all the time. And she, because she was a, a botanist, a biologist, that was her, her master's degree in her, in her undergrad. And so we would go, she, she actually started the environmental center on Long Island in my area. She was actually a founding member of the Environmental Center, which teaches still to this day, teaches children about science and creatures um, small and big. Um, mm. And so we would spend a lot of time mucking around in muddy ponds and edges of, of the streams and the beach and things on Long Island and hermit crabs and slugs and, you know, all kinds of creatures, you know, in, in nature. So so it was that's just how I grew up. So yeah. my answer is, I guess I gravitated, you know, to, to creative, right? Well, so then, so is that what you, what you pursued in college was, was no, writing? No, actually, okay. I, I was pursuing fashion. I was supposed to do two years at my school and then two years at FIT. I did a, one of those hybrid programs. And then um, I really liked it at the first school. So I ended up... I ended up um, not going to FIT, which I pretty much regret. I do regret not going to FIT. I think that would have been fun to go to school in Manhattan. Um, but I did stay up there. I made some lifelong, wonderful friends who I still am in touch with. Um, but I, so I majored in fashion, merchandising and marketing. And then I worked in retail and then realized it was really a really hard and crummy business to work in. And so I thought, mm -hmm. I don't want to do this. So I didn't know what to do and I was kind of floating around and friends of mine worked for a mutual fund company and they got me an interview and they liked me. And even though I had no finance experience, 
<laughs> they gave me this job and um, I learned all about, I got my securities licenses. I, mm. um, I learned all about investing, which I find to be absolutely fascinating. Um, and, you know, I kind of leaving out this big thing. I had a very, very bad car accident when I was 20 and, okay. it, took, and it took many years. I went through the windshield and had a very serious head injury and lots of orthopedic injuries. So there were several years in there where I couldn't retain any information. My brain was, has rewired itself. It took about five or six years. So right wow. around the time when I started working for this mutual fund company was right around the time that my brain decided to work again. And I was able to retain information and learn. And I could remember I didn't have amnesia. It was just the, it was just a short circuit from my head injury. You know, I just needed, the brain needs some time to recover. And um, anyway, so I just was like a sponge. So I just took in all this investing and insurance and estate planning and tax planning. And I just loved it. I just, in my brain just soaked it all up and I was really having a good time. And so I have been, in the financial industry since 1995. Wow. <laughs> so my day job is very um, analytical and talking right. to people and consulting with people about their finances and helping them and this and that. Um, and then at night, you know, I am I am being creative, writing blogs for some freelance writing clients. And mm. my publisher and I developed a uh, online video, uh, creative writing video series for grownups. And then I developed a creative writing um, workshop for kids. So that's yeah. schools and libraries. So so I have this analytical piece of my life, which is my day to day. And then at night is my creative stuff. So it, it's a very eclectic mix. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. could would you just be a full-time writer or do you like having multiple areas of your life that are otherwise not connected does um, that make I, sense well like from a global perspective i would say what i have learned in my years on this planet is that setting yourself up with multiple income streams from different sources is smarter than putting all your eggs in one income basket so this is what i've learned especially in the last decade um, but my passion for writing, I would love to be able to write full time. I would love yeah. to be in a position where I could do that. Um, but I do, you know, having said that, I do really like helping people like figure out their cash flow, build their net worth. Like I feel like I'm making a difference in helping people when I can, yeah. you know, with them. So I, I would hate to give that up because that's very satisfying to have knowledge that I can share with other people. And it's, it's not dissimilar so much from the creative writing workshop for kids that I created. And then from that, mm -hmm. my publisher and I, Stephanie, 
um, um, did the online video series, um, which we have for sale. So, you know, it's, it's about five hours of instruction. I created the worksheets and the slides and we did, and, and I had, that was, that was our COVID thing. You know, we oh. were all on lockdown. And so that's what we did. <laughs> we, got, right. we got on zoom and we created this writing class and it was a blast. I, so the teaching part of the writing is great. I did a couple of uh, virtual library events with like third to I think third grade to like sixth grade that mm. signed up and they were all on Zoom and we were all there and we created, we talked about the story arc and character development. And we just kind of throughout the conversation was not planned. We created a character. We took this, this young girl through the story arc and they kept throwing out all the obstacles, the climax, and then the fall from the climax. And then another, and so it's like, so I was teaching them about the story arc and and we just all had such a good time so it's maybe like eight or ten kids and myself and then the librarian and and we just had a lot of fun create so so i guess the teaching aspect of my financial part is is connected i guess but otherwise but i'm never good at short stories and maybe that's why i'm a pretty good writer <laughs> but i would i would love to just be doing the writing that would be great the writing and the teaching of writing yeah i would love sure. to be doing that yeah yeah i just think it's so fascinating to talk to people who you know i mean um it, it well I, I say it's easy to understand i don't know if it's easy to recreate um but you know if someone like i i interviewed a guy uh several months ago now who he published his first book in the 70s and has been a published author since then i mean published his right. most recent one in 2020 right uh -huh. so he has a 50-year career <laughs> as just an author you know what i mean yeah and so it's like you can understand that but that's not actually from again based on my limited experience that's not actually most people's stories but i think that for people who might aspire to do something like what you've done where you have this finance career that is totally separate from your creative writing career right right that that, that it might seem like oh well i'm already in this finance thing so i can't now do this other thing because I, I you know i would have to completely change and it's like no, like you can do both actually. <laughs> no, you can. I mean, you know, listen, I had little kids when I, when I kind of started dabbling around and turning this journal, wasn't my, my grandfather died and the journal sat in the filing cabinet for many years. And it wasn't until my grandfather died. Then two years later, my grandmother had died. We're blessed with them making it in a mostly healthy way through their mid nineties. So that was a blessing. Mm. And um, it wasn't until I was writing her eulogy that I even remembered the journal. And then mm. I pulled it out of the filing cabinet and that's when I read it. And I thought, God, this is an unbelievable, like you can't. And I, I wrote it in the introduction for book two that, you know, anything could have gone wrong with Robert. He could have been swept off the ship. He could have been hurt by some predator, you know, whatever, like the million things could have gone wrong, but because it didn't, I'm here. So that's a little surreal. Yeah. You know, to be right. writing about this, and one of the things my grandfather gave me was the um, this little wooden shoe. It's 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 kind of an old snuff box, but right now it um it has my grandfather's medals that he um won in college. Um, mm. And um and so, but that belonged to Robert. So Robert gave it to his daughter, my great grandmother. She gave it to my grandfather, and he gave it to me. So it's really cool to hold this actual physical thing in my hand that Robert treasured because he got it from his older brother, not the one that was beating him up, some other one that he really liked. Um, it right. was a big family of 12 kids. So 
it's something that he treasured enough to pass down and I'm holding it in my hand and I'm taking his story and I'm turning it into, um, you know, this series. So it's, it's really kind of, you know, I don't know. It's, it's rewarding. It's, it's, um, but I did it, I did it, you know, my kids were little and, and I, and I had my own practice and, you know, with financial stuff. And, and so I would, you know, clean the bathrooms and vacuum and fold the laundry and write a page. You know, I would, I would, you know, the kids would be doing their thing and I'd be sitting in front of my laptop kind of trying to whittle away, or I would take them with me to the library and get some books on sailing and, you know, charting the Atlantic ocean and the British foreign policy history from the mid 1800s and all the things I had to research as they, you know, did their thing in the library. We did spend as a family, my, myself and my children, a lot of time in the library. And my kids both love to read as well. We did a lot of reading. So. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it's so interesting um, to hear you talk about the research. You know, earlier you mentioned that you had dabbled maybe in acting a little bit as a teenager when you're in high school yeah. and that sort of thing, but maybe not your your true calling. Yeah. But I was <laughs> interviewing... Acting. No, definitely not acting. <laughs> Unless you want me to act like a very busy, stressed out mom. That I, that I, have, to, I have that one down. Yeah. <laughs> You've already got the script, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, so what's interesting is I was having a conversation with a, a different author uh, probably a year ago now or so, but and she was talking about how and she had written, her book was entirely fiction, um, so it doesn't even have the historical basis that yours does, but she was talking about the research that she had to do, and, and she was one of the first fiction authors I'd ever interviewed. Most of the authors I interviewed before that were all writing you know, nonfiction stuff, so there's certainly research involved, but it's a different kind of research, I would right. say. Um, and, and so when she was explaining this, it dawned on me that the other place that I had heard of what she was talking about, which what you just said made me think of it, is actors. Because actors constantly have to research things about the character they're going to be playing. You know, if they're going to play a boxer, then they have to know something about boxing. They don't have to become professional boxers, obviously. Right. But they have to have some idea of what they're doing to portray it. And it, it was the first time that it had struck me that a- actors and writers <laughs> potentially have that in common. So I was curious how, you know, you mentioned that you were doing a lot of research about that time period and, you know, British politics and Navy and stuff. But how much time did you spend doing that research? Because oh. I think that's something that people don't think about when they think about fiction writing. Yeah, I mean, exorbitant, extensive <laughs> research. I mean, I love the beach. I'm a beach person. I love Long Island. I want to visit every state in our wonderful United States, but I have to live within 10 minutes of a beach or I'll go out of my mind. So I'm just one of those coastal people. So, but I've never sailed. I love going out on boats. I like Mm. to water ski. I could, you know, whatever, paddleboard, kayak, all those things, but I've never sailed. I've never handled a sail. I've never, I think I've been on a sailboat once and it was after the book was published. So, Um, so I had to teach myself that. Um, so there were, I mean, I, I actually wrote a letter to the, um, director of us naval history because our naval command structure and rules is very, very much structured off of British, the British Mm. rules and, and process and procedure. So I contacted him by letter. His secretary called me within two weeks, which was really cool. And she said, well, talk to me about what you're trying to do. So I explained what I'm trying to write this book and it's based on this true story and this and that. And so she says, well, give me the, here's the email, send me the list of questions. So I thought 
I'm going to have this guy's ear. I'm throwing everything at this guy, but the, and, and including the kitchen sink. I'm just going to write everything down that I don't know. You know, from holly stones and how they scrub the deck to what did they do in, in a storm and, you know, all of those things, right? So I wrote mm -hmm. like two pages of questions, which was probably a little, oh, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not shy. I'm not a shy person. That's not my problem. Right. So um, anyway, so instead of, and I never actually spoke to him, but instead of, he did answer a few of my questions, but primarily he answered my interview questions with, a two-page bibliography of reference books, both nonfiction and fiction, oh. about naval structures, naval ceremonies, you know, uh, uh, Moby Dick, you know, um, If Two by Mast, you know, Richard Dan and stuff, Patrick O'Brien and his series, which um, Master and Commander is one of the books that he wrote, that oh. he wrote, he wrote a multitude of books from the age of sail. Um, so that set me on a research mission like, I don't think, and this man is now retired. I did try to track him down. He's in my acknowledgments of the first book, but he has no idea who I am. And he right. has no idea how influential he was over my writing because mm. it was because he gave me that bibliography. And then when I started reading those books and studying like the anatomy of a sail and the decks of the ship and, you know, how everything all fit together, I realized how important it was to be able to describe that as if it was a movie. Right. Then I read a book about using imagery in writing. And one of the mm. most important things I learned was how many senses can I bring to the page? Mm. So when I'm, and I teach this to this part of my writing workshop, because I think this is so important. So the creaking of the wood, the lapping of the water against the hull, you know, the sound of the seagulls, the the little that that snapping noise that the sails make in the big mm. wind, you know, the the driving rain or the or when they danced in the rain because they were stuck in the doldrums and they were sitting there not moving for two weeks and they were running out of water and, and then it finally rains and they're stripping every all their clothes off and dancing around in the rain. So oh. I mean, just all of those really intricate details of naval life and what these young boys and so the whole story is told through robert's eyes so mm. and that this is also a lesson in point of view right so anything that happens has to be within earshot of robert or within eyesight of robert so if it doesn't happen around him or in front of him it can't be on the page so yeah. everything is through his eyes the reader is learning as he's been walked through the ship the first time he sees a whale, the first time he sees a shark, the first time he sees tropical fish, and they cross the equator. And there's still, to this day, polywogs and shellbacks. And a polywog is somebody who's never crossed the equator by sea. And uh, you have to go through this initiation ceremony, which way back then was pretty harsh. Very yeah, I'm sure. Amazing. <laughs> It's like real hazing. Now it's it's certainly dumbed down these days, but they do still do like a King of Neptune, King Neptune court, and they wear their clothes inside out or backwards and they wear silly costumes and, you know, hmm. shell headdresses and all kinds of stuff is still done in the British Navy and the, and the U.S. Navy. Hmm. So to some degree, I mean, they don't do the hazing they used to do back in back in those ages sail days, but which was pretty sure. nasty. Yeah. So but it was really fascinating. So every time I would read something, I would just learn so much. And I thought well, this must have been what Robert experienced. I mean, I don't know because I never met him. Right. But sure. it had to have been the wonder and the terror 
and the and the amazement of everything that he went through as as this 12 year old kid and it grow essentially growing into a man on these naval ships you know all over the world's ocean so it was really so i had to do a lot of research and so when i would be like okay there's a storm something in the ship breaks they've got to now fix it okay well how did they do that so obviously this must have happened to ships some ships sank some lost a mast or all their sails or so how did that even work and so really in the hull of these ships they had almost a replacement for every single thing on the ship every brace every rope mm. every sail or they had the ability to sew it all together if they had to which, right. which ended up happening but there were certain port ports along the coast up and down the atlantic especially that were big british naval ports mm. like in the virgin islands um rio um and you know coming around the horn coming up the other side valparaiso chile is another one so those were three big ones so i just i just found out all this stuff as i read and then i thought well why isn't the reader going to wonder what are these ships doing? You know, like what is their mission? You know, why why are they just floating all over the place? You know, so then I read about. So I thought, well, you know, wouldn't Robert ask that question? Because I would if I was a twelve year old kid trapped on a naval vessel. I'd say, like, well, but why are we floating around the ocean and having hundred foot waves crash on our head? There has to be a reason, you know. So yeah. then I researched the foreign policy and I tried to work. Now, of course, he's a kid but he can overhear the captain. He can overhear the officers talk about what's going on and what's happening. And he can, you know, they were, he mentored with the first officer who found them hiding in the lifeboat. So he, they would ask Mr. Smith and Mr. Smith was their tutor. You know, mm -hmm. he was the tutor of life. Um, him, uh, Robert and Michael, Michael was his friend. And um, so, you know, that that's how the research. So every time I would get to a point in the book where, mm -hmm like okay i'm doing this and let me research this or let me watch master and commander for the 1500th time <laughs> you know so i mean i watched that movie i mean i'm a russell crowe fan so i and i love that movie it's so well done so well done um but it gives me even though it was set in the napoleon era which was in the 1700s it still gives me just about every visual reference so when they're in the battle and they're firing those cannons and I know that Robert was a powder monkey. So I'm thinking, and I read all about the whole sequence of what they did and that there's six men on the gun crew and those mm. guns were two tons. And if you were behind it, when it when it was fired, you were basically smushed like a pancake. Like, so wow. very, very dangerous. Like, and they had to wear socks, you know, or bare feet because they didn't want to create any sparks of any errant gunpowder that was spilled on the floor. I mean, it was just, the procedures were very tight and very specific, but they fired those big, huge cannons with all of these procedures in less than 90 seconds. And then they reloaded wow. and then they'd fire it again a minute later. So, I mean, it was really intense. So when you, when I read about it and then when I watched visual references in movies, you know, so yeah. um, the master and commander is the big one, you know, and I had already seen it. And then I just kept, I have the DVD. My kids gave me the DVD in my, in my <laughs> Christmas stocking. And so I still have it. I still have it. And I still throw it in every once in a while. But yeah, it gets, it's just, so the research I thought was, I mean, maybe I felt a real strong sense of responsibility because it is based on a true story. I mean, I did have to fictionalize some things 
to sure. move Robert from one true thing to another. Like Mr. Smith is is based on, you know, half a paragraph. Like so I had to build this whole character and just imagine what this old salty dog was like, you know? Right. So, and kind of build a backstory like actors might do a character sketch. None of that makes it into the script, but it is in their body language. It's in their tone of voice. It's in the, it's, it's in. So even though a lot of my research, most of my research didn't necessarily make it on the page, it's mm -hmm. in, in my head. It made it into maybe the setting or it made it into the way that characters reacted with each other or spoke to each other or, and I just felt like if I'm writing historical fiction, I don't want my, any kids that are reading my book to to think that, you know, like to have something that I know is false and put it in right. the way. No, like that to right. me, not happening. Like, so it has to be based in real stuff. Yeah. It just makes it so much more authentic. Um, yeah. It's like I had a, I, I interviewed a, an author, I don't know, a few months ago who she's a, a professional a world champion martial artist. Wow. And her book has, right. <laughs> her book has fight scenes in it. And she was like, when I was writing the fight scenes, I would literally just take a friend and act out the fight scene yeah. to see, like, how does this work? You know what I mean? And, and same kind of thing. Not that every choreographed move translates to the page, but it just helps build this foundation of authenticity so that it is far more believable, even if the reader isn't consciously aware that it's more believable, right? Like, yeah. I think there's still an intrinsic value into, into what you're describing. Oh, a thousand percent. I believe that, you know, Definitely. I mean, there's a scene where they're rowing a boat and they've never rowed a boat. So they were told they had to row the officers because the ship is pulls into harbor. And, you know, they these were huge ships. These are 400 men on these on the crew of this of this men. So imagine what those hammocks look like. They're like little <laughs> sausages hanging from the beams from the ceiling. And they're all like swinging as they're, you know, and swaying together. And, and these men figured out how to sleep somehow in that in that crazy environment. So they get ordered to row the officers to shore, but they don't, they don't swim. They don't, they've never rowed a boat. So I literally sat, I watched YouTube videos on how to row a boat and yeah. I read step by step. So I literally sat on my couch and like pretended to row. There you go. Well, if I'm 12 and I mean, I, I kind of grew up going to the beach, so I kind of know how to handle a paddle, you know, for the most part. So I'm like, if I'm, 12 and I've never been in one of these little tiny dory boats, right? I have the, I'm bound to not do it right. I'm going to be turning in circles. I can't point the bow in the right direction. I can't. And there's the two of them, you know, rowing. And then the, the officers who are, you know, 10 of the officers who can't wait to get to shore so they can get drunk and, you know, <laughs> get a girlfriend or, you know, all the things that sailors did in those days. Um, sure. so they're very anxious and weighing the boat down and these kids are like, so I'm thinking, well, how would they turn around and the paddle wouldn't go in and it, instead of it going in, you know, slicing the water, maybe they, you know, it slams on the water. So I'm trying to think of all the things that could go wrong as yeah. I'm on my couch pretending to row a boat. And so that's how that, so it probably was me doing that for maybe two hours. And I think, I think that scene is like a page, you know, right, <laughs> right. but it's, it's, I mean, I don't, it might be two pages or maybe, I don't know, somewhere in between, but anyway, sure. but that's, so I would, but my danger of, I would be so meticulous about the research that I would get caught in a research loop. You know, like mm -hmm. when I was finishing the second book, I was researching the Crimean war and I've read so much about the Crimean war 
I could probably teach a class about this. <laughs> I don't remember even learning about the Crimean War when I was in school, but now I know all about it, right? So, so I'm, I, and then I'm writing it. And then when I realize I'm writing the scenes when he's in the Black Sea and in the middle of this, you know, horrific uh, war, which all wars are meaningless essentially, right? But he's in the middle of this crazy conflict and he's, now 16 17 you know he doesn't really know he doesn't understand the politics and how things devolved into this horrible situation all he knows is he's up in the crow's nest and there's cannons going off and gunfire everywhere and the hills are on fire and he doesn't know it's the charge of the light brigade you know he doesn't know <laughs> and he, he doesn't know he doesn't know any of that so i realized when i was writing it I can't put all my research of hours and hours of research. I can't really put it on the page because Robert wouldn't know it. So right. that's, so that's one of those things where I think it got into the authenticity and the setting and, you know, this kind of stuff, but it, but, but it, it, it you know, it really, it, so we have a teacher guide in the back of adventure at sea for teachers and then i made another one for runaway at sea so now the newer versions of the first book have it too but one of the teacher guide questions under history i try to hit as many subjects as i can is about the crimean war like why was there the crimean war like why why was controlling the straits you know from the mediterranean to the black sea so important like why did everyone want to control the rock of Gibraltar? Like, why did that matter? You know, so right because those are things that I couldn't really put in the book, but I think those are the historical locations that were so important strategically in foreign policy. So it's definitely things that kids can learn about and they can have fun reading the book and get into the adventure and the action and then do a project that's not necessarily related to the book, but can then understand like, why did you know everyone fight over gibraltar and and why did everyone fight you know over over the strait into the black sea and why would you know why was all those things important yeah yeah well i mean a story that's you know 150 200 years old having that level of context or that framework for what the world was like then i think helps bring the reader or you know, the students in the example you're talking about maybe closer to that story so it doesn't seem yeah. quite as foreign right yeah um yeah. So this is such, this is, I, it's probably dumb of me to say it, uh, but whatever, <laughs> not the first time. It wasn't the point of what you just said at all, uh, but I have to, I just have to say that I think that um, saying that when sailors get on, on aboard land, that they get a girlfriend might be the most euphemistic <laughs> way that I've ever heard what would well, take place John, there. Yeah. No, no, and John, I'm not asking, dramatic. my point yeah. is not to elaborate, um, right, right. I just... I just had to, I just had to, had to come I, was, I was impressed. That was good.
you're doing all this research and obviously like you said you know you, this journal is like a family heirloom yeah. in some ways right in many ways and you have it and then eventually you get it out and you read it how long did it take for you to i mean maybe not just decide that you're gonna write but really once you actually started kind of trying to work on it to write that first book is it several years is it several months no, what does that I, look like it, it, it was definitely several years on the first one and that's because I didn't know what I was doing, first of all. Um, and then second of all, it was like a hobby. You know, it was like, oh, let me turn this into a story. Um, mm -hmm. And the thought of it ever being published was, I was a fantasy in the back of my head, but I didn't really latch onto it as something that was real. And I, as my, you know, I was a mom and I was working and, you know, life was happening. It was a very busy decade, you know, whatever. So I whittled away and whittled away and whittled away at it. And it really wasn't until maybe... 18 months before Runaway at Sea was published, which was in the February of 2020, or maybe 24 months that I hired an editor. I, you know, I mean, I always went to a critique group. I still go. And everything that I write for the books gets workshopped with my critique group. So awesome. it's kind of like having a small group of little editors, like just yeah. you know, keeping me in check because they'll they're not shy about saying, you know, this dialogue doesn't make sense. And, you know, did they use that word in 1855 or, you know, did they, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's really like, it can be, yeah, very, right. but yeah. we're, it's made me a better writer and it yeah. certainly made my editor's jobs um, much easier because they, <laughs> they, catch, they catch all my mistakes, except by commas. I do have some comma issues. <laughs> they're overusing or underusing, but um for the most part, I'm pretty strong on the grammar, except for except for some punctuation use. But in the um, so so, I would say probably two years. I mean, it was written, and I was going to conferences. I had met with a literary agent, um, who is the one who who counseled me to actually make it a series because it really was supposed to be one book. But I, you know, original my original concept was completely different of what I wanted to do. It wasn't going to be only about Robert, and it just became about Robert. It just took on that life of its own. But this literary agent, I went to one of those pitch-a-palooza kind of things where you have three minutes to impress an agent, and you know this and this and this. You're running around, and you're standing online. You have three minutes. You're like, quick, you know, try to sell your book, sell your book. <laughs> and the room is filled with hundreds of authors, many of them debut like me no name, no nothing. You know, you just got to try to get on somebody's radar. So this very nice woman stayed and, and chatted with me after my three minute session. I was the last one online. So I just kind of lucked out that there was a break for lunch for the conference. So she sat with me for another 10 minutes and she gave me an education about the middle grade genre, about the word count, about this and that. And she said, you know, if, if you're around 100,000 plus words, she's like, no one's going to publish that in middle grade space because it's too long. It's too mm. long. They don't want anything really over 70,000 words. So, and I oh. thought, wow. So she's the one who said, break it up into, into a series. And that actually accelerated the publishing piece of it because I was able to say like, oh, I can cut it here. This is a great place to end the first book. And it was, oh, it's done. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah so um but the publishing piece of it is frustrating you know i mean literary agents are i've met a bunch of them at these conferences and they're all very wonderful nice people but they're very busy and it's very hard very hard to get their attention and i ended up meeting my current publisher through a networking contact like just local networking on long island and 
he knew I was writing this book or I had written the book and doing freelance writing. And he said, you need to just pick her brain, just call my friend, Stephanie, you know? So I did, I sent her four chapters and it took six weeks for her to get back to me. So of course I was thinking, oh my God, she hates it. You know, it's terrible. It's really, really hard when you're, when you're giving the work out to somebody that's not in your family, not in your critique group, not a, not a good friend who made soft soap, you know, whatever. Now I'm really giving it to somebody who's going to judge it. And, and it's very, you have to do that and you have to have a thick skin when they say, eh, you know, maybe not. And this and that you have to, you have to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. She came back. I love it. Let's do three books together. Like, you know, whatever. But I was on pins and needles for six weeks. So I ended up using a local um, publisher on Long Island, which I'm actually excited about because I'd rather use local people, right? Shop on Main Street kind of person. And yeah. um, and uh, she's become a very good friend and she's like a literary agent slash publisher. And I've just learned so much from her. So, so, it's, so it's been great. So the second book really was much faster. I would say I got the second book I mean, I had the shell of it, like an outline, but when I read what I wrote five years ago, you know, for this, this book too, I thought, oh God, no, this is delete, 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 delete. So <laughs> I'm like, this is terrible. Who wrote this anyway? <laughs> <laughs> so I did really kind of rewrite the whole thing. I mean, I did have the outline, but I did rewrite that. And that took about uh, five months, took about five months. Oh, okay. So the second one was much faster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, I, a couple of things strike me in that. So A, I think it's super cool to hear you talk about that when you first started it, it you didn't have like published as your number one focus. I mean, yeah, it was in the back of your head and, and maybe you worked towards that, but as you're working on it in those early years and just kind of putting things together, you, you know, like you said, it was almost more of a hobby. But the reason I think that's so interesting is because in our current <laughs> society culture whatever right there's all this emphasis put on like know what you want and chase that only and that's it and if you're not pursuing that like a rabid dog then you don't deserve to have it and it's like yeah maybe <laughs> or maybe just consistently working on something because i don't mean to imply that you didn't work really hard on it because you yeah. did but oh yeah it, it wasn't this thing where you're like I have to throw everything else away in my life. And this I'm, I'm this writer now. And it's like, again, kind of like you didn't have to quit your finance career. Like people can be more complicated, I guess is maybe what yeah. I'm trying to say. Than yeah, and I, I, I'm not necessarily, cause I, I maybe mean, I come from a different kind of example. So for instance, my, my uncle is a patent attorney, right? My aunt um, was a pediatrician. So they did one thing, they did it passionately and they did it to the nth degree and very, very well. So they're very, very, you know, experts in their fields. My mother, though, was concert pianist always her whole life. You know, she's just absolutely incredible to just sit and listen to her play even now today. Think, you know, she's doing really well. And she awesome. plays, still practices one, two hours a day, still has her music group and all of that. But she was a biologist um, and she worked for a lab. And then she was teaching piano when we were at an age where she thought she wanted to be home a little bit more. So we didn't get into as much mischief. And then um, and then she went back to school for computer programming. So and, and retired as a computer programmer. So she had three careers. And the right. piano, the piano's been the was the was the thread through the whole that was just that's her passion, you know. Mm -hmm. So um my sister, you know, um kind of three careers, you know, she's done a bunch of things. So so for me, 
I think like my mother would say, I took violin, I took flute, I took piano. I look back now, I can't, I hate that I don't play piano. Like I need to reach, I have to start from scratch. It's been so long since I played. But my mom said, you know what? You were not passionate about piano, so I didn't push you. I was passionate about dance. I was passionate about other things, right? But I wasn't, um, I wasn't crazy about the piano. So she's like, if you have that passion, then you should pursue it. So I feel mm -hmm. like there's some some of what you said has to do with, you know, if you have a passion, follow it. Don't don't not do it. I think that's important. But I'm also a believer that you know, at a young age or, you know, whatever, who said that you're going to stay in the same career? I mean, I wanted to be a dancer. I was going to join, you know, the dance I ended up going away to school. Then I had a car accident. So forget dancing, right? But like, you know, I was lucky. I, I walked away with that with the use of my arms and legs. I am very, very lucky. So it was years of recovery, which definitely interrupted what I did for a living you know, because, because of my brain injury and the time I had to recover. So that threw a wrench into my plan, you know, and, and like my, with my kids, my son, from the moment he could hold a Cheerio was building structures on his high chair. I mean, I'm like, this kid's going to be an architect. I mean, he was building Rube Goldbergs from the second floor to the basement with Scotch tape and Thomas the train tracks and hot wheel tracks and anything he could find to build and make marbles go everywhere. I mean, he was constantly building, but you know, he's, he's 21 now and he, he tried engineering and when he got into the, he loves to build things. He likes to create stuff, but he, he got into the curriculum and he was like, Oh my, this is not for me. And so yeah. he switched to computer science. So now he's much happier with computer science. So, but you know what? In 10 years after working in whatever job he gets, he may completely switch <laughs> because yeah. he's a very creative kid. He does a lot of reading and he did writing in, um, in school, in high school and stuff. And he's a pretty good writer. My daughter is an excellent writer, but she, I think, is moving towards aerospace, but she's at school undeclared. And I'm like, you know what? If you don't know... We're not going to spend a lot of money trying to pigeonhole you into some major that we think is going to be jobs, you know, like nursing or, you know, something mm -hmm. like that. It has to be something you're remotely interested in. But I just feel like there's a lot of room in our society for people to be able to migrate or have dual things. I know a lot of people who have side gigs. And they yeah. have side gigs because they need the extra money or they have a side gig because it's a passion. Yeah. So I, yeah. yeah. So I think, feel like that's like an individual case up by case thing. It is. You're, you're absolutely right. And you're absolutely right that, you know, the examples that we have to look to, you know, in our personal lives, whether they be family or friends or whatever, also influence us. Um, I guess, I, and, and obviously this is my own bias from what I see in the world. So who knows, but I just feel like there's a sentiment that it's like, if you're not able to, again, maybe you can't quit your day job, but if you're not hitting it eight hours a day after you get off work on whatever your side thing is, yeah. then you may as well not. And it's like, that's not really true. It might take longer, right? Yeah. But you can water something over time and still, you know, I'll also give you kudos, not that you need a pat on the back for me, but, <laughs> but you are a published author because, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of authors that end up having to either go the route of self-publishing or finding right. independent publishing and, and, and like you said, the publishing road is hard. Um, but even for someone who has a separate career and takes a long time, at least initially, to kind of work through the writing process, 
um, you can still be a published author, <laughs> which is so cool. There, there are a lot of different ways to publish. And yeah. the, the traditional publishing industry is inching, you know, inching towards, you know, whatever. But um, but it really is great to have an opportunity to to put your work out there. Now, even if I did get a literary agent who was interested in my in my stories, right, in the series about Robert, that literary agent still has to then sell it to the publisher. So right. even if I got a literary agent right when I was working on it, was querying agents right away, I still was at least a year and a half away from getting mm. published if they were able to find a publisher. And let's just say Random House wanted to publish me, but right. I don't have a name. They're not going to give me any marketing money. They may mm. stamp Random House on 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 the on the copyright page, right? Right. But that's it. Like I have to still do my social media, contact schools, talk to curriculum directors, you know, um, go out and book my own book, you know, schedule my book signings and, you know, all of those things. But because unless you are a name, either a celebrity or an expert in your field where it's almost like household or you have a following, you know, you're not going to get the marketing money from any publishing house. You're just right. Not. So you're kind of back to square one. So what ended up in my favor is that I found Stephanie and my book was from the time we signed the contract, my book was out within six months in a traditional publishing world that would not have happened, never mm. would have happened in six months. It, it would have been two years of contracts and editing and, you know, selling and, you know, just trying to get somebody interested in it. So this was this was great. And what's nice is um, I've had so many people read the book kids and grown-ups and teachers especially i had friends that were teachers that i said please read be my beta reader and gave me blurbs for the back of the book and really loved it i mean these are women in my life who would not say oh this is great and i love it if they didn't you know they right. would tell me. they would tell me so it was great to have teachers as as recommended blurbs and you know reviews on the on the back jacket of the book and every time i have a curriculum director read it or a principal or a superintendent or you know a librarian read it and they love it it's like it just you know it just gives me more confidence it gives me it's it's like in my freelance writing a few months ago i wrote a blog about happiness and so i did all this research on the chemicals of the brain which which control our happiness and you find out that you actually have a lot of control over your happiness every single day and there's very small things that you can do that trigger those those happy chemicals in your brain to flow through your body and give you that positive energy because even a goal like i'm going to clean the bathroom today you know or i'm going to fold all my towels today or i'm going to make a vision board which i did actually did start a vision board i'd have to add to it <laughs> but i did start a vision board because visual positive visual visualization is very very important to goal setting reaching goals achieving goals and happiness so mm -hmm. every time so so if you are somebody who's got something else and you want to write a book and you're kind of doing it on the side you know self-publish or do a hybrid publish if you can't get the ear of a literary agent you're just going to get that rush of of achievement and it's just going to drive you to achieve something else and it could be sweeping the patio washing the car or writing a second book like it doesn't matter right um yeah. but, but it just it feeds itself so the happiness the goal reaching the achieving it just all feeds on top and so you can't let the naysayers 
get a space in there. You have to, you have to, and I had people tell me, you're being foolish, you're wasting your time. Mm. You're never, this is never gonna amount to anything. And it was, and these were people saying, some of these people were important people in my life at the time. And I, and I just kept going. I just yeah. plowed through and I listened to the people that were saying, just keep going, just keep going. And I listened to my own. And it was like, my grandfather was, he would say, if I, if I did something that he liked, right. If I was achieving something, he was very, very big on goal setting and you know, all of that. And he would say that's cooking on the front burner. So I would, I would hear his voice of my whole childhood of cooking on the front burner. If you're not, you're not cooking on the front burner. Now you have to, you know, so that is this phrase that just resonates in my brain as I was doing mm -hmm. all of this, because he's the one who gave it to me. You know, he yeah. gave me the little wooden shoe. He gave me the story. And I don't think he envisioned what I might turn it into. But I think sure. if, if he was here, he would tell me I'm cooking on the front burner. You know, he would, yeah. be he would be very proud of what I created with the story that he gave me, which is a very, very valuable inheritance, much more than anything I could imagine. Um, sure. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I got to say, and I don't say this to try and, you know, flatter you just because we're talking, but um, I mean, the story that you have, as far as, you know, what the story that Runaway at Sea and Adventure at Sea is based on is so unique and cool um, to have this family heirloom journal from, again, 100, you know, 100 plus years ago, and to be able to turn that into a series of novels is so cool. And beyond that, your personal story is, frankly, just inspirational. I mean, you you had this tragic car accident, which, and I get that's not the point of our conversation, right, but right. you don't really emphasize that very much in our chat, and that has to be a pretty big deal from it what you what deal. it was yeah a exactly at the time I had a great I had a great plastic surgeon who who yeah. fixed my forehead, but you know that was the least of my problems. But I had I did I had to have emergency brain surgery. I right. had a blood clot that formed on the left side of my brain that if they didn't get it out, I would have been dead like that night. So very right. it was very serious stuff going on. You know, so yeah. so it was definitely no small feat at the time, although. You know, there are plenty of other accident victims that did not fare as well as I, and and sure. I really count myself as being lucky, very very lucky. And my heart goes out to those people who get paralyzed, who you know have brain injuries that their brain don't, you know, their brains don't recover, which is which is a big problem. But um, yeah. but I, you know, I'm proud of you know what I may I got a second shot right yeah <laughs> close call I had a second shot and I and I'm right now I'm in a good space where I'm liking it took me a lot of years <laughs> 30 some odd years to get to the point where I could say yeah you know maybe the second shot now I'm really doing something cool not I yeah. mean, children aside being a mom of course right right, right. <laughs> that, that's that's always the first thing right of course but of course second, second thing can be the books yeah yeah no I think it's awesome I think it's super yeah. awesome I'm, I'm so glad to to be able to hear and, and share your story so the website is runawayatc.com people can right. find both books there they can also find them on Amazon um, right. I'll have a link in the show notes but I'm curious, when do you have it? We have an idea on when the third book in the series. Um, will well, be out? I'm, I'm in this break period um, of um, between books, and I had horrible writer's block last year, moving from book one to book two. I think I just couldn't let go of the characters. Like I had a lot of trouble getting myself moving and started, and and all of that. So I'm I'm giving myself a little space now 
I would yeah. love to have it done by Christmas, but as it is mid-September, I'm not seeing that that's going to work. But right. I would like the anniversary, the second anniversary of Runaway at Sea is February 5th, 2022. So if I can possibly get this out by February 5th of 2022, I would be very happy to have the third book published on the anniversary of the first book. So I think that's kind of where my head, I would love to finish by Christmas, but I can't see how that's going to happen. So I keep missing sure. Christmas. I keep missing Christmas releases. But, <laughs> well, but I my think publisher it's... likes me anyway. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, we will definitely yeah. be on the lookout for it. Um, and again, I'll have show notes in the show notes. I'll have a link to runawayatc.com. Is there anywhere else that you would like to, to have listeners link up with you or, or connect um, with you at? Well, there's a Facebook page for Runaway at Sea. Um, I have an Insta public, you know, well, an Instagram account, Marguerite M or at Marguerite M. I'm on TikTok, which is at Marguerite M. I'm not particularly active on TikTok right now. I'm just, I'm still learning the platform and I was doing so much writing that I couldn't spend the time on the TikTok, learning TikTok. So, um, so there's a Facebook group and I, then I would say like the website has my creative writing workshop for kids. It has a link to the the grown up creative writing um, boot camp series that we did, you know that kind of stuff. So so and if you're a teacher, curriculum director, you want to do a virtual visit, an author visit, um, there's a contact form. You know, send us an email. You know, we'll call you right away. We'll get something set up. Could be anywhere in the country, right? This is what we've learned. We've learned that we don't have to be, you know, in the same physical space. We can still learn from each other, and we can still help each other and be on other sides of the country. So that's so, um, so yeah, it's all kind of, I would direct everybody to the website for all that stuff. So. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I will say, and I, I this is my failing. I, I'm honestly, I meant to emphasize more of the, 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 the teaching that you're doing. I think that's so cool um, that you're giving back and, and have that program for kids. And honestly, you know, when I was growing up, like uh, my impression of, writing was that it was this like really rigid thing where there's all these rules and like the commas you mentioned earlier right yeah. <laughs> and all of that can be there of course but there's this really fun creative side to it that and again i might just not have been paying attention but i feel like i didn't really grasp as being there growing up so i think it's so cool that you're doing that um to show kids yeah, the cool i mean i often think i missed my calling i sh really should have been a teacher from the get-go you know um yeah. but but I would say on the editing piece, that can be if that's something that scares people from writing, if that's something that stops you because you're worried about it, that's what an editor does. Every writer has to get an editor and every editor is going to rip it apart and put it back together. And they're going to tell you if your story arc is broken and, you know, just get it on the page. Don't yeah. worry about the grammar. Don't worry. Just get the ideas and the concepts, get it down, get it out of your head, talk it into a tape recorder right? We have all those little pens. Now you could just have a pen in your pocket and it becomes a digital recorder or your phone. <laughs> so right. don't, don't worry about the things you don't know, because that's what an editor, that's why publishers have editors. You hire an independent editor. So don't, don't let it stop you. So that, yeah. these are things that I've learned. Like I was afraid of using dialogue. So my first versions of Runaway at Sea were very heavy on the narrative and exposition not a lot of dialogue because I was terrified of it. And then I realized as I was going to critique groups and reading it, they were like, well, why aren't these boys talking to each other? They're stuck in a lifeboat. Why is there silence? And when did they go to the bathroom? You know, like, so, I mean, these are the things that come out of the critique group. And then I started using dialogue and then I realized that's the best way to get the characters to get to know each other, for the reader to know the character and to move the story. 
you know, yeah. so sometimes you have to dabble in what scares you, um, but don't let it stop you. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's so awesome. I mean, it's something I talk about a lot with when it comes to podcasting, if someone says, how do I start a podcast? There's all this emphasis put on like the microphone, for example, mm-hmm. does a quality microphone help? Like, of course, of course it, yeah. it helps, but a good podcast is not defined by the quality of the microphone, nor is a good story defined by appropriate comma placement, right? Not yeah. that those things don't have a place, but that's not, yeah. you know, there's something yeah. more to it that matters. Um, so I think that's brilliant. Well, again, Marguerite, I cannot thank you enough for your time. It has been an absolute delight talking with you this evening. Really pleasure. I just really enjoyed it. It's so much fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And I hope we talk soon.
her business suit standing at our back door, telling us all about the change. Her Sunday shoes standing at our front door, telling us all That's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Marguerite for stopping by and sharing her walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I'd also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. All of these shows are available on any podcast app. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up.